Well, I want to share with you this evening out of uh, John's Gospel, chapter 6, and we're going to do a survey of the first six chapters. And uh, I'm a big expositional guy, meaning that um, I believe that uh, what I do is, in these kind of settings, what I'm called to do is to allow the scriptures um, to be the center focal point of the pulpit. Not opinions, not what I like, you know, uh, not what I prefer, but quite literally to let the scriptures paint a picture of what a Christian looks like. And then you and I sit back and look at that picture, and if you don't look like that picture, you have a choice. And the appropriate response would be, I allow you to mold me and stretch me. And there's a natural, what we call it at least, there's a natural death process that takes place. There are going to be times in your life where the Lord just, He just puts His finger on things in your life. And what I've found is it's not always like evil, sinful, terrible things. I'm a, I'm a great guy. I'm pretty narrow. You know, I don't steal. I don't lie. I, I never killed anybody. Uh, not a serial killer. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't embezzle money. I don't live for money or I wouldn't be here. Um, you know, see, I, I'm serious. Hey, I, I'm a pretty straight-laced guy that loves Jesus, to be quite frank about it. But most of the things that God puts his finger on in my life are things that are not bad. They're just things that are not his. Really. They're perspectives that he does not maintain. They're feelings that he doesn't have. They're, it's just like we're on two different pages. And he reveals it. And he says it's just separating intimacy. And what I, what I haven't realized in the past and what I've come to realize is the things in my life that are not necessarily bad, they're just not him. They end up leading and breeding to other problems in my life. And so when we come together in these kind of settings, we just say, hey, Jesus, I'm wide open to what you want to do in my life tonight. And uh, I, I just want to be yours on every level. We all want that, right? Amen. You said it, not me. Um, I want to look with you tonight out of a, what I would consider a little bit of a difficult passage. If you want to go with me to John chapter 6, and I'm going to give you the punchline um, before we actually look at it together. And uh, I want you to look at John chapter 6, verse uh, 70, no, 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 60. When you break down the gospel of John, the first six chapters of the gospel are dedicated to the first two years of Jesus' ministry. And that is minus the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses of his gospel are a prologue, which means those, that's the, um, the part of the gospel that kind of paints a picture of what, um, you know, who Jesus is, gives you his identity. We looked at some of that last night. Um, when you get to verse 19 of chapter 1, that's when the narrative, that's when the story begins. And you just have these first two years and the highlights where the gospel writer is presenting, um, you know, that, that message of Jesus ministering into our world. These first six chapters cover Jesus picking his disciples, and, and it's almost like a weeding, and there's, I, I still don't, still to this day, I don't know the right language, but it's almost like a weeding out process 
Um, there are people that were big fans of Jesus, uh, major followers of Jesus, who were not interested in being a disciple of Jesus. Now, that's a little different language that he uses, but it comes down to the principle of what we find in our day. Not everybody who comes to church on Sunday comes to church on Sunday. See, not everybody who sings worships. Not everybody who gives 10% tithes. There's a difference between being religious and being madly in love with Jesus. My son doesn't listen to my sermons online. See, I dealt with my son on this today. And, you know, he's just so mean to his sister. And it's embarrassing because I know obviously none of your kids deal with that. But he's 14 and Elena's a little pest. You know how girls are. But he's just brutal. And when I deal with him, he's like, but she did this. And I'm thinking, what a pest. But you can't say that as a dad. And we're dealing with him as a young man of making decisions that I treat other people not based off of what they deserve, but how he would treat them. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. That I want to be so tight with him that my interactions in life are an extension of who he is. Not just because I want to go to heaven, but because it's right. And that's a pickle for him. And so you're constantly in that. And you know, when I'm talking about the way he talks to her is brutal, he's just rude. Just rude, man. I'm like, be loving to your sister. He's like, oh boy. You know, and they're going to that age. But that's similar to what the Lord is doing in, in my own life. When we're talking about the message, you have these, this group of people um, and that I identify with in these first six these first six chapters that are following Jesus, but they just don't have his perspective. They don't have his motive. They're following him and they're loyal to him for their own self-centered desires. I mean, there are no Hitlers, okay? There's no like evil, necessarily evil people, but hear this folks, how do, how do you define evil? Anything that's not of him is not of him. I mean, it's really what it comes down to. And I've got hundreds of these examples. One of the biggest issues I find in church today is I, I don't meet many evil people. I just meet people that are distracted from who they're called to be. Um, I, I consistently see on Sunday morning, I, I run into these women in church. You watch them come in from the parking lot. They have, they have four or five of these little, you know, monkeys running with her and pulling her in different directions. She looks totally disheveled, out of her mind. She, you know, she gets them in the church. They lock them in some back room. You know, she, she comes in. She, they literally collapse in the, in the seat. They listen to the service. Afterwards, they came up, come up to me. They're moved. They're teary-eyed. And they say to me, I'm going to get my husband to come tonight. And then you end up meeting him on Sunday evening. And this is big in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana where there's hunting. And you meet him on, you meet him that evening, you shake their hand, they're there, the kids act different, the whole family environment's different. And he comes up to you and says, hey man, I apologize I wasn't here. You know, I've just got to, got to feed my family. So I was hunting, you know because you just can't buy food at Kroger anymore. You got to kill it. 
you know. And that's the only reason I'm doing it, you know. Just got to feed my family, praise God. Got that 12 point this morning. Not that it's just about the points, you know. And you're, he's not an evil guy, but you're under your impression he's just a bozo. And he doesn't know what priorities are in his life, you know. He's not bad. He's not evil. But I don't think he realizes the spiritual weight that he has in his home. And so you look at that guy and you say, well, is, is hunting sin? No, but it might be for you. Are sports, is sports sin? No, but it might be for you. And those are the kinds of things that God, I just found over the years, especially though, I'm just telling you, as long as you walk with him, he's going to, the longer you walk with him, he's going to begin to narrow your life. He's going to begin to narrow what church looks like for you. And so this is what's going on in the first six chapters. You have a group of people that are following Jesus. And by the time you get to John chapter 6, give you some of this at the beginning. By the time you get to John chapter 6, the text says 5,000 disciples. And some other of the um, uh, gospels, I think it's 5,000 men. The feeding of the 5,000, we have all kinds of information about. It's one of the few, it's one of the few miracles that's told in all four gospels. Feeding the 4,000 isn't, you know, the wedding at Cana isn't. There's a number of, 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 of miracles and events that aren't told. This is a staple, but it's not only told in all four Gospels, it's placed in the same transitional time in Jesus' ministry. It's the same place. Jesus, the cleansing of the temples in all four Gospels, it's not always in the same place. So this miracle is just so significant. And you'll notice I said transition because before this miracle, Jesus has 5,000 disciples along with their families because the idea you have the heads of their household, most of the time men, who say this is the Messiah, we're following him, and they pick up their family, uproot them, and follow. So most scholars say you do probably have, you've probably heard this before if you've been to church uh, any amount of time and heard this preached, that you probably have 20, 25,000 people here at this, this setting in this miracle. So before this miracle, you have that many people. After this miracle, you have 12. It grows to about 120. So Jesus at his death had 120 followers. Sold out. But now check this out. I'm not talking about 120 churchgoers. I'm talking about 120 absolute fanatic narrow-minded, gave their whole lives to the kingdom, and they won their world. I tell pastors this all the time. I say, if you could get 20 people in your congregation that are flat out his, you'll shape your community. I'm talking number one priority, focus of my life. I get up every day, kingdom. Well, yeah, but we have to go to work. That's your mission field. I'm not going there to make money. I'm going there because I'm absolutely focused on the kingdom. I believe you're leading and guiding my life. Why do you have me here? Because I'm worth a lot more. 20 people. He had 120. And listen how this unfolds. We're going to go through this. But the whole chapter kind of unfolds, and you come down to verse 60, and this is at the tail end of his address, which we'll get into at the end. And it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, after hearing what he, how he defined a Christian, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then down in verse 66, it says, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In other words, when they heard the real deal gospel, what it really means, they said, hey, not for me. 
the mantra, I think this is hysterical, and you got to look at this in its context. The promotional strategy of Jesus for his messiahship, for his ministry, was unless you take up your cross, die to yourself, you cannot be my disciple. That is the theme throughout the whole of the Gospels. It is impossible to be self-centered and be a Christian. Impossible. All sin comes from, I, hey, this is about me, not about you, and not about you. All sin has its roots in self-centeredness. The Bible calls it carnality. If you've been around church, I'm sure you've heard that term. Which, if you look at that in its culture, take up your cross, that was a symbol of Roman oppression to the Jew. They did not crucify Romans. They crucified Jews and other nations. I mean, it was, it was offensive to use that kind of terminology. And it was the most aggressive, radical, crass language that he had available to him to describe what it's going to take to be a Christian. It's just, and it's so abrasive to stand in front of church and say, it's just, it's not about you. It's about him and his mission in the community. We have people come up and say, well, I don't like the worship. I don't care. It's, it's not about what you like. It's about salt and light for our community. And in our world, we do. And every generation has their flaws. Some of the, the uh, you know, I love the enthusiasm. Honestly, stuff like revivals and, and conferences and gatherings and special services, those are coming back with the younger generation. They love the worship conferences. They love the big gatherings. They love the high points. They love, the, they love that stuff. I mean, it's really coming back. On the downside of that generation, in other words, they're not caught in the routine of tradition of this is what we do every single Sunday. The downside of that is you end up having the younger generation that they don't go to one church where that's where they minister. They tend to come to church, they'd go to five or six different churches because they like a little bit about that church, a little bit about like this church, I like a little bit of what's going on here, they like a little bit, love the worship over here, oh, we got a new thing going on over here, but that's them, it's about them. It's not about coming to a church and saying, how can I plug in? Hey, how can I be involved? How can I be used? It's, it's we, we, we've commercialized church. And again, I'm not talking about your church, just all those other churches in the world. We've commercialized church to where it's, you know, what do you have to offer me? What do you have to offer me? When what the body is really, we are to be salt and light to our world. And we are, we are to be mission-oriented where we come together as a body, as a unit, where we're accountable. And we say, hey, how do we invade our world? In fact, Sunday morning is an equipping, an equipping setting where you are equipped to go out and minister throughout the week. This is old hat stuff. This is old news. Which means it's not always about me. When I go to teen camp, I think everyone at teen camp should be in bed by 10 o'clock, and I think they should be up by 6. I think we should have nap times at uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, I think we should sit around and drink coffee and talk. We should watch the news at least sometime during the day. Um, Bible study, and maybe another nap in the afternoon before service. You know, it's never been a big sell. I, couldn't, I never could get that done. 
That's, that's, I, that, that, teen camp's not about me. I dictate one thing, and that's the message. Seriously, I dictate the message. You know, they want to run around and act like teenagers, help yourself. And so what the services and, and, and the worship style and the music and all of that, we dictate the message. This is literally what we're going to get into in this passage, um, which is John chapter 6. Now, what's so neat in this is I want to present to you, there's a development. And I found this quite honestly, and I'm not just trying to build the passage up. I found this almost shocking. If you follow through the gospel, you should not be surprised at how aggressive Jesus is to this group in John, because he is brutal. I mean, he looks to him and says, no more miracles, no more anything. In fact, he, he flat out, for the first two years of his ministry, tries to avoid this group. They're constantly coming to him saying, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, I don't want to be your Messiah. You say, why would he say that? Let's look at this together. You first get a glimpse of this group who will become the 5,000 crowd back in John chapter 2. So if you want to turn back there with me, and we're going to cover a couple things just really quickly uh, so we don't have to go through them over and over as we go throughout the, the book because we're going to stop at some high points. John chapter 2 and 3 is a, a very unique kind of a setting the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to look at this miracle just really quick, it's a miracle that's only told here in the Gospels, and it's the first of his signs. Teen, stay with me. It's the first of his signs. In John's Gospel, this is so cool, in John's Gospel, his miracles are not called miracles. In some of your translations, the NIV, for example, they're going to translate his miracles, like in chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs. In the original language, the word miraculous is not there. It's not that it's, back, it's, it's bad, because most of the miracles of Jesus were miraculous. I mean, seriously, dead people coming out of the tomb, that's killer. Walking on the water, that's supernatural. That's not normal. It's not like you see that every day at Kroger. So, you know, there are miraculous things that happen, supernatural things. But in John's gospel, which is some 60 years after all the other gospels are written and you begin to have baggage surface in the church, John has to stress that Jesus was not an entertainer. That's a sensitive spot for me especially with youth ministry, I got under the impression for years that they said, well, we just need someone dynamic. I'm not interested in being dynamic. In fact, I'm going to be rude. I'm going to make fun of them and yell at them if they don't pay attention. Because I'm not an entertainer. I've been under the impression there's times at certain teen camps where I come and they all sit out and say, all right, can you keep my attention? I can physically abuse you. <laughs> that might work. Okay. Jesus was not an entertainer, entertainer. And so his miracles, though they were miraculous, he was not trying to be miraculous. They were signs. Which means, hear this please, every miracle, especially in John's gospel, they are chosen specifically, which is why some of his miracles aren't told in the other gospels. Because in the other gospels, it's all about, wow, this is crazy. And it was written towards a different audience. John's gospel is written to a mature church where... 
basically there's, there's maturity in, 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 in those who have followed Jesus. And they begin to see, especially John, that what Jesus did, he didn't do for fame. He didn't do for entertainment. There was significance in everything he did. Like last night when we looked at the Passover. It wasn't just some weird story. There was significance in that. When God says, get a snake and design it, and it wasn't like God was bored. You know, what's fun about killing snakes? I know what we'll do. No, it wasn't that kind of a thing. There was significance. So in, the, in John's gospel, his miracles are signs, which means Jesus was doing these miracles to teach us something about himself. Now, it's important for me, we'll look at one. There are seven of them. But in this one, it's the, it's, it's the wedding at Cana. Basically what happens is Jesus crashes this wedding party with 12 of his friends. And there's this big social blunder that has happened in the midst of this family and the wedding, which was like a week long, and it was a social disgrace. They ran out of wine. We all know what that's like, never enough wine at weddings. That's <laughs> just, it's just a Nazarene joke for those of you who didn't get it. And so Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, listen, we got to get involved in this. And Jesus says down in verse 4, he's like, dude, I'm, hey, I'm, this ain't my time. This ain't my deal. Leave me out of your mess. But you know how moms are. They don't listen. And she's gathered really quickly, just crossing over. She's gathered all these servants to take care of the wine issue. Um, and of course, there's all kinds of details left out of the text on purpose. But you're under the impression, gathering the wine issue, they had wine, empty wine vats, all these kinds of things. They were going to go to the next town, do something to find wine. And, and Jesus' mother said, listen, he's in charge. He'll tell you what to do. So Jesus, he tells them, drop the wine vessels. And he points out seven ceremonial washing jars that had nothing to do with wine. And it would appear he's totally just blowing off the wine issue. And they're the big ones. Each holding from 30 to, oh, what is it, 40 to 60 gallons, 30 to 40 gallons? Verse 6, nearby stood, stick, stood six stone water jars, the kind, by the, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these are the big ones. They are literally jars that were set aside to provide for the ceremonial washing rites of the Jews and keeping the, the ceremony, you know, being ceremonially clean in the law. It's, it would, honestly, in our culture, we might understand it as a, a baptismal. They're not used for anything but for baptism. If one of the senior adults comes by on Tuesday and the youth leader has the teens and they treat it as a hot tub, someone's head's rolling, okay? Because that is not what that's used for. That's an understatement for these. Seriously, that's really what has happened. So Jesus says, you see these ceremonial washing jars. And it's in the middle of the day. It's a wrong time to fill them up. There's all kinds of cultural stuff, which we'll skip. But he, he tells them, fill them up. So they fill them to the brim. They come back now, anticipating to deal with the wine issue. And Jesus says, hold on, put that stuff back down. He tells one of them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. We have all kinds of things I wish was in the text. Were they, was it changed into wine yet? Because we don't know when it happened. It's not in the text. I assume that they, they filled them with water, they came back to Jesus, and when one of them goes to draw out the water, it, again, it was ceremonial washing water. You wouldn't have put it in a drinking pitcher. You'd have put it in a washing basin with a towel. He would have went back, lifted up the lid, and found wine. And then the story, and of course, he goes to the master of the banquet. He takes some to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet says, wow, this is great vintage. Party's on. It's awesome. And then the miracle ends and John says, it's a sign. And we're like, what? 
And there's all kinds of application that I've heard, you know, that it's the first example of Welch's grape juice, you know, in the Bible. And all of that. If you go back and look at the context of the story, listen, Jesus could have put the water into anything and changed it into wine. He could have said, get some empty wine vats, fill them with water, changed water into wine, and then you'd had wine where it's supposed to go. He doesn't. He specifically chooses religious, old covenant relationship, which is passing away, old covenant relationship instruments, and he fills those with wine, rendering them unusable. You say, what does that mean? It's a sign. The way we will be ceremonially clean in a new covenant is not through old covenant means, but through the blood of Jesus. It's a fulfillment of Joel. And his disciples see this and they go, it's a sign. And what is so neat about this, by the way, what is so neat about this is if you go through and you look at all the miracles of Jesus in the gospel of John, every one of them shuts down some old covenant understanding of our relationship with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. It wasn't what he was doing was, you know, wasn't awesome or wasn't cool, wasn't supernatural. It's a dangerous thing to kind of interrupt the traditions of the church. If you remember where Jesus talks to the leaders of Israel, he says, you care more about your traditions than about keeping the law. And it was a major critique. They had traded the whole heart and seeking for the routine of, well, I'm not bad. And so this, this first miracle sets the tone of his entire ministry. So he ends up, and then we're going to make this quick, he ends up coming down after this miracle to the, uh, to the temple because it's the, piece of the, fa- uh, it's the uh, feast of the Passover and there's this big celebration. And I'll give you some bonus material since you came tonight. Um, scholars tell us during this day and age, the population in Jerusalem was about 250,000 people. But during a, a major feast like this one, uh, population would, ra- would rise from 250,000 to 2.5 million. And there just wasn't enough room to keep everybody. And so what people would do, all the inns would be filled. And so what people did, started doing is they started, archaeologists tell us, and, and tradition tells us, and the scriptures tell us, is that people would build houses on top of their houses. They would build these apartments, and they would call them upper upper rooms. So when these feasts were going on, people who were having a hard time financially, because this is a very difficult time financially, they would rent these out to people who were coming to Jerusalem, make a little extra cash. And so Jesus comes down and they rent out one of these upper rooms somewhere in Jerusalem and they go to the feast. When Jesus comes in, if you want to know the details of what he does, they're given to us in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Basically, Jesus comes in, turns over tables, makes a whip out of cords, starts, he, do, he does all the things in church that we've always wanted to do. And then from verse 17 to the end of chapter 2, you have recorded for us, this is important, you have recorded for us three categories of verses, which represent the responses of three different types of people. Verse 17 is a certain type of group that responds to Jesus. Who is that group? Verse 17, his disciples. 
And it tells us how they responded. Verses 18 through 22 tells us how another group responded. And those people were called the the Jews. And they were the leadership of Israel. Basically, that's what he calls the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees. He calls them the Jews. And then from verses 23 through 25, you have this group that represent the many who saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. This group will end up being the 5,000 crowd that Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with. Notice how they're presented. This will become a theme. Listen how they're presented. Verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs. In other words, the things he was doing, they recognized he's the Messiah. Signs he was doing and they believed in his name. But, verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. See, he wouldn't, and you can probably translate that more accurately, he knew these men. So there's a whole group of people that said, we believe you're the Messiah. We believe. And Jesus says he would not entrust himself, which is the same word believe used in the opposite. So with the same fervor that they believed and were excited about him being the Messiah, that's the same emphasis of him saying, I don't want to be your Messiah. And that was a different, that's a different understanding for me because I've never found any place in the New Testament where Jesus says, I don't want to be associated with you. But it happens right here. What ends up happening is you leave chapter 2, and you, uh, in chapter 3, Jesus has this, basically uh, the events of the, t- uh, of the temple were recorded in chapter 2. Chapter 3, Jesus, in the first 21 verses, he explains what was happening to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus comes out to see him. And then in ver- uh, beginning at verse 22 through the end of chapter 3, he goes out in the countryside, the Passover has ended, all these 2.25 million people are going back up to Jerusalem, or excuse me, back up to Galilee and wherever they're going. And so Jesus and his disciples begin to minister. And we read in chapter 4, verse, verses 1 through 4, that the, the leaders of Israel, because of the stink that he made, the things that he was doing, they begin to spy on him. And there's controversy already starting. And so Jesus leaves to go back home. But you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 4, it's an interesting route in which he takes to go back to Galilee. Uh, Israel, metropolitan city, academic city, the big city, Jerusalem is in the south of Israel. Up in the north is Galilee, and that's, you know, like Tennessee. You know, it's country, they have beards, uh, they drive lawnmowers to church, you know, <laughs> listen to country western music. It's hill hick country. And literally, they, it was almost disdainful. People in the big city said, no prophet ever comes from that area. I mean, they speak with a southern drawl. Y'all this, y'all that, make up of these words that don't exist. It's been tough for me. So Jesus is going back up north, but he takes this really unique route. He goes through Samaria. And, you, and there's, we don't have enough time, but... Samaria became polluted in 586, 87 BC when the Babylonians came in and conquered and took everybody back to Babylon. And they just didn't, they made some people slaves, but they put some people in government. And the idea of the king there was just to blend the cultures together. In fact, when the, when the exile ended, some people never came back. I mean, Daniel had been 
up in the political system. He was a Jew. They were welcomed. So what they did is they took all the Jews, most of the Jews, uh, definitely out of Jerusalem and in the north, and they took them to Babylon. And then the Babylonian king, okay, he took some of his people and he transplanted them in Samaria, and he wanted everybody to intermingle and intermarry. So within a couple generations, you know, there was no us versus them. It's actually quite, they did that in a lot of places and it was genius. But what ends up happening is that the Israelites, God told them, don't intermarry. And through the prophet Jeremiah, you're only going to be here 70 years, which Daniel discovered, and they end up coming back. And it's a long story, which will probably bore you to death. But they end up coming back and rebuilding, rebuilding the, the next temple. But when they came back, they find all these half-breeds in Samaria. And no one wanted anything to do with them. They were like pariahs, you know, like people from Michigan. They just, you know, don't want anything... I'm Ohio, Michigan, you know, I've been here before. It's, so when, so no one ever went in Samaria. In fact, if you got the, one of the, one of the rumors was, is if you got too close to Samaria, the dust that blew from that land would defile you. And yet Jesus goes right through it. And you're thinking, why? He's losing the crowd that's following them. And you pick that up. So he ends up going into Samaria. And this is such one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. In chapter 4, he goes to this well. And his disciples are stressed out about being there. In fact, they tell him in the passage, you stay here. You don't want to go in this town. Samaria is a really bad place. So they leave. And while they're gone, some prostitute, some prostitute comes out and has this big old long conversation. He's just chilling, you know, they're talking. Disciples come back, they're absolutely flipped out. They end up going into that town and Jesus stays there for two days. Look at chapter four, verse, what is it, 42? 43, after two days, he left for Galilee. And if you were to go back and read specifically, we're not doing it, verses 36, 37, 38, 39, down through verse 42, he spends two days here ministering at this woman's house with his disciples and changes the whole entire genre of the town, but how they look at this woman. It's a phenomenal redemptive story. But the two days happens and he's got to get up to Galilee. I want you to listen to this very clear, clearly. In my translation, verse 44 is in parentheses. It's probably like that in your passage. That means it's not a quote. This is not, it's not John writing down something Jesus said. But John, the parentheses, is telling you this is kind of the tone of his attitude. On his way back to Galilee, if you want to know what was on his mind, what he was chatting about, what he was stressed about, this is it. Listen to this. Verse 44. Now Jesus himself, that means this is emphatic. This is not interpretation. Jesus literally, this is him. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. In other words, all the way back, Jesus says, I'm telling you before we get up there to the group, most of Jesus' followers come from Galilee. They were the ones that were down in the temple in chapter 2. So when Jesus is on his way up there, he says, I'm telling you before we ever get there, they're not going to honor me. Two different Greek words in the New Testament for honor. One is doxa, one is tamin. You say, what's the difference? Doxa is give glory, honor, and praise. And they're always doing that. Gloria Doxa honoring somebody is like what we do with veterans on Sunday, on Veterans Sunday. 
we have them stand up and we say, wow. And we do, we honor them. We give them, we give them praise. You guys are awesome. That's doxa. When Jesus says, I tell you before we ever get there, they're not going to honor me, he doesn't use doxa, he uses tamin, which is weird because tamin is a financial term, and it means worth. He says, I'm telling you before we ever get there, they don't know what I'm worth. Yeah, I'm an entertainer. I'm a miracle man. I'm there to heal their bones when they're honey, uh, hungry, fill their bellies. Yeah, I'm there to be used by them. In fact, when you go, when he finally gets up there, listen to how pessimistic he is, how it's almost irritated he is. As soon as he gets there, everybody comes rushing out. Oh, Jesus is here. Hey, wow, and you're awesome. Hey, you, yeah, yeah, you know, my, hey, my, my cousin's leg, you know, it's a little bit sore, on the leg, and I got a cow that needs, could you, you got a couple minutes? That's literally what they do. And in verse 48, Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. In other words, unless I'm doing something for you, you're out. Chapter 4. Chapter 5, he goes back down to Jerusalem, causes more trouble, which is awesome. And then you come into chapter 6, and you enter the 5,000 scene. I'll give you a little bit of geographic, kind of what scholars tell us from knowing about the area and all this. In chapter 6, Jesus is out in the kind of like Galilean wilderness, if you will. And scholars tell us the place where he was actually teaching from, which matches the text, was up on the side of this mountain. And it was more like a big hill. And the people had spread, because it was small, up against the Sea of Galilee. The people had spread from one side of it to the other side of it. So there's no escape. So they're just sitting there. And one of the disciples comes, says, listen, we've got to feed these people. It's been a couple days. Walmart's closed. Got to do something. Jesus ends up doing this phenomenal miracle couple fish, couple pieces of bread, 12 baskets left over. Listen to how the people respond. Down in verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet. And notice in your text that the P in prophet is capitalized. That means it's not like a prophet. The Messiah who would come would be prophet, priest, and king. This is a messianic title. They're saying, surely this is the Messiah who is to come into the world. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Yeah, that's what I said. Seriously. Two things. Why would they have to come and make him king by force? He didn't want to be their king. And why would he return to the mountain by himself? He runs away. I'm telling you, I'm absolutely convinced there are people that want Jesus to come and be a savior that he did not come to be. We saw it with we saw it with Peter. Peter said, Over my dead body, we need a Messiah, and you're not gonna screw it up. And you guys know what happens. He ends up running up the side of this mountain, tells his disciples, and we'll paraphrase from verse, uh, verse 16 down through the end of verse 24. Jesus runs up this mountain, tells the disciples to get into a boat and go to Capernaum, which is just on the other side of the lake where they're at. And he hangs out there until night. 
And in the text, they don't go up and get him because they've surrounded the mountain. I mean, where is he going to go? Is he going to walk down the backside of the mountain and walk you across the water? (laughs) Yes. Okay. And that's exactly what he does. In the middle of the night, he walks down the backside of the mountain, walks out across the water and escapes. And it's hysterical because they literally go up to find him the next morning. They're like, dude, this guy's like Houdini. He gave us a slip again. And then this is the neatest thing. Look at verse, this is some bonus material for you. Verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats. How many people were there? 20, 25,000? You realize there were no luxury cruise liners parked there. Scholars tell us they got into 12 to 15 passenger fishing boats. You imagine what that would look like, this great armada of ships? And the text tells us that they come into, they come into Capernaum, and Jesus, you'll find this out in verse um, 59 of the, of the chapter, that he's at, a, he's at a synagogue. He got to Capernaum, went right to the synagogue, started preaching. Well, someone obviously runs to the synagogue, scared to death, thinking they're being invaded, and Jesus comes out and meets them. And this happens not on some shore, but in the center of town at the synagogue. And listen to how Jesus confronts them. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, when'd you get here? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and your bellies are full. And he tells him, verse 27, stop trying to use me. Don't work for food. They say in verse 28, well, what does God want from us? What does he want us to work for? Verse 29, Jesus said, me. The work of God is this, me. Get wrapped up into me. Run after me like you run after food. Run after me like you run after sex. Run after me like you run after entertainment. Run after me like you run after football, after hunting. Run after me. And listen to how they respond. So they said to him in verse 30, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Hey, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and it's breakfast. And Jesus says, just so you know, no more food. Buffet's closed. No more miracles. In fact, the only food you're going to get is my flesh and blood. And they're like, he's not going to go around. And he confronts them and says, listen, I'm not here to be used by you. I'm here to use you. I'm here to pull you into the kingdom, my father's kingdom, which is going to win a world. I grew up in a, in a really rough home life. My dad was a real handful. Ended with a happy ending, but in high school he was brutal and uh, you know, beat my mom, beat us. It's from a very poor home. I worked a full-time job going through high school. I worked, uh, had worked at a gas station down the road. I'd go to school from 8 to 3 and then from work from 3.30 to 11.30. And dad was not around and mom left him and it was a bad deal. He ended up getting radically saved and did missions work in the Church of the Nazarene and preached in and around Indiana. It was beautiful later on in his life. But in high school, it was really rough. So I didn't have a relationship with him at all. 
and I was so tired of Indiana, as I told you a couple nights ago, I think. I basically joined the Marine Corps and said, I just want out of Indiana. Left. And then I'm getting saved and came back. I learned that my dad was saved, but he was dying. He, uh, my dad died as a result of a fist fight. He was a tough, the tough guy. And if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Just how it is. And uh, I came back in 1995, went to college from 1996 to 1999, and he died in 1999. And um, my sister was really close to my dad. There were members of our family that were really close to him. And I remember in college, my mom called me, and she said, the family, Benny Hinn, whatever you think of him, he's coming to Indianapolis, Healing Crusade. And uh, we're going to take Joe. And we just believe God's going to heal him. God's going to heal him. And I wouldn't oppose to that. I'm like, right on. But what if God chooses not to? So we went there, took him there, preached. People being healed left and right wasn't fake. It's awesome. Wheeled my dad down to the altar, and he didn't get healed. And I saw it on some of my family's face. And I listened to it on the way home. I asked God to do one thing. I'll go to church. I love him. Give him my life. I asked him to do one thing. And that was the straw that broke the can. It's interesting. There's this pattern when travesty comes, when difficulty comes, when finances come, when these horrible, we get real, real serious. As I told you last night, sooner or later, he's not going to jump when you snap your fingers. That's one of the extremes. And I can't give, you'd say, why would God do this? I have no idea. You better be thankful I wouldn't God. I'd be killing everybody. I'm like continent, tsunami. There'd be like five or six people left on earth. I'd be one of them. I don't know why he is what he is. But I'm not talking about those things and neither is he. He's talking about mission and purpose of his church. There's a, there's a version of Christianity that exists in modern day America that just literally nauseates me. Those who built this building, who raised and erected and gave their money, it had, every church building I've known that's existed it happened out of revival. I mean, it really did. God doing a new thing and there's excitement and there's growth and there's reaching their community. And I've been to churches, obviously I don't know your history that well and I don't know, I don't know your history at all. And I don't know you, not passing judgment on you, but I've been to churches. It just turns into a club. And you can come to our club if you like our music, but don't try to change anything. And people are so, they're so fickle. I've been that way. And Jesus is saying, I'm wanting a body of believers that come and the core focus of their life is it's not about me. And I, I try to paint this picture in a way that I think we understand it. What, and I use stuff, illustrations like, what would you give to get your grandkids excited about church and be in here? 
because they are never going to like your music. I don't even like, no, I mean, I love your music. (laughs) She's like, I'm totally fired. (laughs) No, but like where I'm from, and I was being honest with you, I don't, but it's, I like our message. But do I like our message? And I hear the negativity. People call them 7-Elevens. Same seven words, 11 times. So they call them. Isn't that awesome? I wrote it down. I thought it was great. And I had to come to him and I read the passage that it came out of. That's plucked right out of here. And it's not about hymns and about... Now, there are some hymns that I think are horrible, but there's hymns like Be Thou My Vision, which are just absolutely, ridiculously wonderful. It's not about... It's not about... It's not about the avenue. It's about the content. And I think there comes a time in our life, both personally and corporately, when God speaks to us and we just have to kind of take count, take stock... This, this really isn't about, and man, that gets so touchy. We had a lady at our church that was just, I remember thinking, I want to be like her. She's in her 70s. It's Delphine. Delphine Manley. Phenomenal. She's not dumb. She realized that the children's ministry she couldn't take it any further and she says I can't use I can't use an iPad and I'm not going to start and she came to the pastor and said I know there's you know I've heard there's talk of a young woman that maybe you need to move into my position and she's excited and she's vibrant and she's got new ideas we need that I'd love to be her assistant How awesome is that? Seriously, how awesome is that? That there's no competition. There's no... I I do. I want to be that 85-year-old youth volunteer that breaks his hip out there on the parking lot. (laughs) Because I love teenagers. And I was being honest. I'm not a teenager. I don't. I don't like games. They smell. uh, They, I mean... Look at them. (laughs) But Jesus is absolutely, madly, passionately in love with teenagers. And the tighter I get with him, the more I fall in love with them. And that should be how we approach our world. Because unless you have that attitude, you'll never win them. Because I'm telling you, they're a handful and they're a mess. And they're going to bring that mess. They're going to bring their bratty kids into your church. I've seen it a hundred times telling you after 25 years on the road I see that construction worker whom you reach out to and bring and he finally brings his wife and his three wolves boys and they go in the youth group and everything's great until your granddaughter thinks that the middle aged one's hot and you're going to go well my, my granddaughter wouldn't, wouldn't say that well clearly you don't have Instagram but <laughs> And I'm telling you, if you run her, if you run them off, they'll never come back. 
and they will literally label your church in the community, someone's going to have to take it on the chin to minister to them. And the most of the people that you invite are so broken, they can't tithe. So your numbers will balloon up and you'll have the same finances and you're going to develop a whole group of people that say, hold on. So the church is all about them, but I'm the only one paying. Yes. Suck it up. Seriously, that's just how it is. It'd be easier for you to let him die and go to hell. Seriously. Because we're living that, and he, he knows this, you, and you've had Manly and Chad here. We're going through that in Lebanon. Churches balloon up, and it takes time because their marriages are falling apart, their kids are a wreck, their finances are out of order, they're wrapped up in addiction. I mean, it'd be great if you could reach other cool Christians in the area, but we're actually to re- reach those who desperately need Jesus. We get so excited. Yes, let's win our world. Are you sure? Give it six months. Think about it. It's safer to become a club. I'm telling you, it's safer to become a club. Because you're going to bring a whole mess in the middle of your kids that have been taken advantage of, who naturally have an inclination to act out. Everything has to go up a notch. Your children's program is going to have to be legal, secure. I mean, are you with me? Little House in the Prairie Church days are gone. Unless you're willing to say, oh, but I've got to. That's the message. Jesus, at, at, at the end of his ministry, looks to his disciples, points to the flock and said, they don't have any shepherds. We don't have workers because we're all just hanging around waiting to die and go to heaven. I'm not meaning to yell at you. But that's... I led my next door neighbor to the Lord last year. He was an atheist. I gotta let you go. This is hysterical. They move in five years ago living together, rowdy couple. Both of them cheating on each other. If there wasn't a party in the yard one night with fights, I mean, I made tons off a YouTube channel off the whole thing. (laughs) I mean, they live right next to us out in the country, middle of nowhere, closest neighbors. He, He comes over one day, knows I'm a preacher. First day I meet him, he goes, I'm an atheist. I was like, right on, man. He just looked at me. And I just hung out with him. Just got involved in his life. Go over and pick up the trash when the dogs came around. We had a group of pack of 11 dogs across the street from a little old lady who was feeding these dogs that were pit bulls that were interbreeding. He and I shot them all together. Killed every one of them. Bonded. It was awesome. It's a long story. It's beautiful. I should tell you the whole thing. But I really got to know the guy. That's a 100% true story. I really got to know the guy. He comes over about five years ago. He's mad on a hornet. He wants to marry this girl. And no, no preacher in town would do it because he's got a reputation. He and his dad own a trucking company. They know in town, biggest trucking company east of Nashville. Everybody knows who he is. He's like, I'll tell you, you preachers. I was like, yeah, I don't know why anybody wants to marry an atheist, living with his girlfriend, partying and drinking, won't go to church. That's weird. <laughs> I said, but you're okay, dude. I'll do it. And he goes, you'll marry us? I said, yeah, man, I'm legal. I'm legit. I can do that. He goes, how much money you want? I said, I don't want money. 
This is 100% accurate. I said, I don't want money. He goes, what do you want? I said, I want to be your pastor. He said, I'm never going to a church. I said, I'm not asking you to go to church. I want you to give me spiritual authority in your life to pray for you as a pastor would. He says, you'll marry me if, I, if you let me pray for you. I said, no, if you let me pray for you as a pastor. He goes, all right. I said, shake on it. And we shook. I was like, you're going down, sucker. <laughs> yeah, because he gave me spiritual authority in his life. December 2017, Krenda wakes up in the middle of the night and had a dream. And she says, Becky and Jake are going to get a divorce. And we started praying for him every day. He called me a month later crying. Becky's leaving me. Drove to his office and led him to the Lord in his office. 100% true. Then I drove to his house and led his wife to the Lord. They're on our church board. <laughs> and they are like so raw. I mean, so raw. They had to use all the wrong language over Christmas. They were asking questions. They, do the, they use all the wrong language. During Christmas, we, um, Stephen was preaching on that Sunday, and they were talking about the prostitute. And Jake was like, okay, so you're telling me about this hooker. So, um, you know, because they don't have all the right... And they're growing like a weed. Guys, that's our call. So your mission field is your work. And you just go in a half hour every day and pray over everybody in the office. And just wait. Jesus, we love you tonight. We thank you for the truth of your word. Collectively, Lord, those who are willing, which I believe are the vast majority, we just come into agreement tonight with the mission and vision of this body that you would hone it, you would make it clear, that we would become laser-focused on your intent for this community. Open up doors, grant opportunities to speak your truth and speak your word. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how uncomfortable it makes me. I don't care what it costs me. I'm absolutely on board with what you want to do in this community. I mean, what else can we say, Jesus? Wherever you're going, I want to be. Whatever you're doing, I want to do. In the name, here am I. Send me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said...